a new era is upon us and Tangent is back with a new limited series hosted by venture capitalist Jeffrey Berman and me, PropTech entrepreneur Edward Cohen. Tangent unites PropTech founders, real estate investors, urban leaders and passionate creators who are improving our cities and quality of life. Join us to learn how we can solve the present day challenges in our communities with innovative technology and greater collaboration. We'll examine diverse issues through interviews and conversations where going off on a tangent is encouraged, hoping to help you become a more nuanced thinker and find comfort in data. If you are working on a PropTech solution, a nonprofit, or a small business that makes our cities better and would like your mission featured on our features segment, please email us at tangentcommunity at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Edward Cohen. Welcome to Tangent. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Berman. Today on Tangent, we're joined by Noah Isaacs, co-founder and co-CEO of Bowery Valuation, a commercial real estate appraisal firm that is powering the best-in-class appraisers to help them appraise smarter and faster. Hi, Noah. Where does this podcast find you? I am in New York. Beautiful. And due to popular demand, Zach Ahrens from Metaprop has joined us again. Welcome, Zach. I appreciate the opportunity to join. We are going to take this thing straight up the charts, just like Burt Bacharach did it, baby. Boom. I like it. Last time we uh, beat Google's podcast on the chart. So uh, let's see where we can take this. Noah, you have a unique perspective on the market, uh, given that Bowery Valuation appraises all commercial real estate asset classes. So uh, give us a rundown on what's happening in the commercial real estate market and how have valuations changed this year? I don't know if you've been following much what's happening in commercial real estate. Things are booming. We've had a pretty meaningful headwind at this point. I think there's two main factors. One, you have interest rates rising, and then you also have interest rate volatility. Both are bad for banks, also bad for landlords as well. So just the sheer amount of real estate activity has fallen pretty substantially. Um, I Don't quote me on this. I heard we're at a 25-year low in terms of actual financing activity. But Noah, do you think that's a function of the uncertainty in the market making sellers say, look, you know, we're going to hold our prices firm and buyers saying, if the cap rates aren't going up, we're not, we're not interested. And, and that's just leading to the stasis in the market. Yeah, I think there's, there are a number of factors. That's big, right? So you have the spread and the bid ask where you have property owners who have an idea of what their property is worth. And it's oftentimes higher than what prospective purchasers think it's worth. And that spread creates sort of this no man's land where there's not a lot of transactions occurring. Also, just within financing, sort of stepping up the stack one level, there's capital was free. So everyone sort of got fat when the times were good and now they're not really hungry. So I think it's going to take time for people to refinance. So commercial real estate typically gets refied every three to five years. So it will come back. There are a number of loans that are coming due, but just given how cheap capital was in the last you know 12 to 18 months and the extent to which we're seeing interest rates rise has really impacted commercial real estate more broadly. And a big part of that is the, the bid ask spread that you're talking about. There's also uncertainty about the asset classes themselves and their potential performance. You're seeing in multifamily, for example, rent contraction in certain markets for the first time in a long time. You're seeing significant 
cap rate softening and supply uh, demand softening in industrial assets. You're seeing office assets that no one wants as office assets that are hard to underwrite as uh, renovation projects. And you're seeing some retail assets, obviously, that are stretched by the e-commerce growing an ever bigger piece of the pie. So I think there was a lot of transaction activity in 21. There was a lot of refinancing activity in 2020 because rates were so low, despite, I would say, real estate related business uncertainty. Um, And now you're getting a double whammy. Everybody who wanted to sell sold last year and nobody can refinance because the banks aren't willing to they don't have a great direction from the Fed on where rates are going, let alone where, you know, where they've come from. Right. And there, there's one other thing, like just go just to go off on a little tangent. Uh, you mentioned you talk about retail, Zach, and this is, again, anecdotal. But a number of our LPs, a healthy number of our LPs that own retail assets are actually saying it's the bright spot in their portfolios. Now, these are primarily neighborhood strip centers where you have the inelastic demand for the grocery stores, the drug stores, the dry cleaners, the barbershops, et cetera. But no, I'm curious, are you seeing, if you, if you take the, the, let's call the four or five big food groups of real estate, where are you seeing the, the most market drop off? Is it office, multifamily, retail, industrial, hospitality? Where, where's the biggest, or is it just all a total shisa show? I think all of it has slowed down substantially. But I think where you're going to see it most acutely is within office, right? I think that's where people are most fearful. Although we'll see what happens, right? Like Snap just announced they're making everyone come back to the office. I think it's this is sort of a passive aggressive way for tech companies to reduce costs is by forcing people to come into the office. And we'll see how that plays out for the office market. In a world where everyone's remote, office as an asset class is a much weaker asset class. And so I think we will see spikes in foreclosure within office at a rate that you're not going to see across the other food groups. Hospitality must be doing really well. Hotels are unbelievably expensive these days. And so that could be, we, we do some hotel work. We don't do a ton, but that could be an area of pretty meaningful growth. Hotels are printing their highest NOIs across the board pretty much everywhere, uh, except for certain sort of business hotels in, in cities that haven't come back. Across the board, highest NOIs of all time from everything I've heard. Right, but we, we have to assume that the ones that are doing well, and Noah, you can, you can speak to this with, with data, have long-term money. If they have short-term money, they're probably pretty scared, if I had to guess. I mean, a lot of it has to do with your time horizon. Right, like as any investor, the time horizon really informs where your best risk adjusted return is going to be. I think another interesting asset class to watch is multifamily property because you have two different counterbalancing forces. One, you have interest rates which increase, expand cap rates that erodes values, but as interest rates increase, it becomes far more expensive to buy a home. And so, what you have is this increased demand for multifamily property. So back in July, we saw single one-bedroom rents in Manhattan average $5,000, which is the highest it's ever been. And so I think we'll start to see the residential rental rates soften, especially as employment starts to expand. But it is this interesting paradigm where interest rates makes owning a house more expensive, which makes renting more expensive. So I'm curious to see how that plays out. 
Yeah, I mean, I think even though multifamily transaction volume has decreased in the last six months, uh, multifamily investment activity had rebounded after COVID tremendously. Uh, I think it's also important to look at what happened before COVID to understand where we are. Uh, So between uh, 2014 and 2018, the industry saw a 74% increase in multifamily transactions, a massive uptick. However, over that same period, the number of appraisal professionals decreased 10%. So it created a a supply-demand imbalance, which led to longer lead times, higher fees, uh, which leads to a segue to our next topic, which is what's wrong with with the traditional commercial real estate appraisal process. Noah, I think you know a thing or two about that. So uh, let's talk about Bauer Evaluations uh, platform and, and what you're doing in the appraisal process. But uh, what's wrong with, with the way we, we uh, value our commercial assets? Yeah, so just as, as background, I used to be a commercial appraiser. My background's in applied mathematics. I sort of somehow ended up as a commercial appraisal. And maybe we can get into that on another podcast. But I was blown away by how antiquated the appraisal process was. Just for context for the listeners, a commercial appraisal can be 100 to 200 pages long and you're writing it in a Word document, and you're reusing the same Word documents over and over again as a template. And they can be linked to an Excel sheet that has 50 tabs in it. And I was just blown away by how manual and tedious the process was, having to go to the same 15 websites over and over again and manually transcribe property information from websites into an Excel sheet that's pre-populated with information from the last report that I wrote linked to a Word document that's got language that's not related to the subject at all. And it was just so easy to error and so tedious and painful that I thought that there would be a better way to appraise. The other thing that I think is worth noting when you talked about the consolidation within the appraisal market is appraisers are on the sort of older side from a demographic perspective. So 71% of appraisers today are over the age of 50. When I was you know, first talking to Zach and Jeff, it was about 61%. So you have pretty meaningful expansion uh, in terms of number of people over the age of 50. Uh, and then you also have 75% of appraisal firms are sole proprietors. So it's a lot of mom and pop shops. The other very surprising stat is that uh, the average MAI, which is your highest designation of appraiser, that's what that's the designation you need to basically sign reports for banks, is 67 years old. So the fundamentals of the space are pretty favorable for us. There's a lot of opportunity. And I wouldn't say the appraisal industry is broken. It's a $4 billion industry in the United States, just on the commercial side. It's about $13 billion globally. So whatever appraisers are doing, there's a lot of money in it, right? Like I I hesitate to say that it's broken. It's working. I think it could just work a lot better. And so what we've really focused on is building workflow tools internally for our appraisers. So imagine TurboTax for appraisers to make it as easy as possible to produce high quality reports. Now, the exhaust of these reports is this really rich structured data object where we have all of this primary data around certified rent rolls, certified historical expenses. We get the leases. We get to abstract those leases. We get entree into the actual property, and we get to take photographs of each unit as well as mechanicals and the roof. So there's all this really rich data that's coming through our pipes. That's just a residual of actually writing the appraisal. 
Very interesting insights, Noah. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but some of the challenges appraisers and investors are facing today is the need to synthesize so many data points quickly. May they be rent rolls, expense comps, NOI potential. And the other issue uh, is that as market activity dwindles, there's just less comps, meaning it's harder to appraise accurately and swiftly. Uh, so talk a bit more about Bowery Valuation's uh, unique data set and how are you setting yourself apart from traditional appraisal firms? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big differences, we're national at this point, so we've appraised in every state. The old way of appraising is very siloed. So every appraiser has their own Excel sheet with their own comps in it. There's no comp sharing. And so one of the things that we've really focused on is uh, democratizing that data and really utilizing the subject property data that we write the appraisals for, for future comps. So we still utilize the usual suspects. We, you know, we're a consumer of CoStar and CoStar is great as a lead, but a lot of their data is just very unreliable. So we actually have the best data coming through our system and we make sure that we can surface it so that our appraisers can reuse that data so we can make better decisions and make those decisions faster. Very cool. I mean, it sounds like we have a collaboration uh, problem across stakeholders that, that you're solving. Can you talk more about, you know, the, the discrepancies and, and different players uh, within the appraisal cycle talking different languages or seeing different uh, reports? Yeah, it's a big challenge. I mean, I think everyone within the sort of deal stack wants things to move faster. Right, the borrower wants their money faster. The lender wants to loan faster, and the challenge is really around how do you collaborate more effectively. Everything is done in a serial manner, sequentially, and you also have a ton of rework. So the borrower has their own rent roll. The broker makes their own rent roll. The underwriter at the bank makes their own rent roll. The appraiser makes their own rent roll. That's wild. It should be integrated. It should be collaborative. Any discrepancies that need to be reconciled should happen in the same place. And you have that with rent rolls, you have that with expenses, you have that even at the comp level, right? Like sometimes we'll use a comp that the bank actually lent on and they'll have even more information than we do. All of that data should be available to us so that we can make as informed of an opinion as possible. Right. By the way, if you're listening to this, sorry, Noah, if you're listening to this, you can't see us, but Zach and I are both nodding our heads and thinking, this is why we invested. Full disclosure. No, that's for sure. I was a landlord and I was responsible for uh, supervising the appraisals of our property. And I remember um, it was the same appraisers got called in on the equity side and the debt side within one month of each other. The data hadn't changed. And when they had to do the entire process, the same people, it was like, I was like, but I just spoke to you. They're like, nope. And I was like, can't you just use the other data? They're like, nope, we don't have it. It's got to be brand new. And then I insisted, I insisted once I met John and Noah, I insisted on going and sitting with these people and seeing how they did the appraisal and how they worked. And I went and sat in their office for a full day. And I was so terrified by the, the process in there that I, 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 just, I just knew that uh, Noah and his, and his partner, John, were, were onto something. Because if the data is being siloed even within the same firm, Imagine the data silo issues across various stakeholders, lender, borrower, title agent, appraiser, surveyor, you name it. Uh, real estate's all about collaboration and uh, amongst many different stakeholders to make a transaction effective. 
Have you noticed how most of our streets and cities are designed to benefit cars and not actually for people? For almost 100 years, we have designed car dependency into our cities to the detriment of our health and quality of life. This is why the team at Transform Your City is on a mission to make better streets worldwide. Transform Your City is the first centralized platform for street transformation using artificial intelligence to generate visualizations of better streets at scale. Their platform connects urban planners, citizens, elected officials, and advocacy groups to rally communities around the street vision and create meaningful positive change for cities in the US and around the world. This framework for streamlined collaboration is a game-changing approach to urban advocacy, one that starts with compelling visuals that radically reimagine city streets. Tangent and Transform Your City would like to invite you to create or participate in a campaign to transform your city and create urban spaces that lead to safer, healthier, and greener outcomes. To learn more, please visit transformyour.city and donate if you'd like to help support this impactful mission. Again, that's transformyour.city. Now, let's talk about the future of appraisal technology. Noah, in our discovery call last week, you shared some bits and pieces about Bowery Evaluation's client-facing technology that you're planning to roll out. Uh, we'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, so essentially for the history of Bowery to date, we have really focused on building internal tools. How can we make the lives of our appraisers easier? How can we enable them to write higher quality reports faster? And throughout that process, our head of sales would constantly be asking, you know, when will you build technology for clients? And at every point we'd ask, are you having any trouble selling? And he'd say no. And that's because there is so much more demand for appraisal than capacity to service it. Now, as we enter into this new environment, right, where you are starting to see some compression in demand, those fundamentals have shifted. And so we did not need to innovate previously. And now we're at a point where we always wanted to innovate. Now we actually have the need. And so a lot of our focus is twofold. One, in differentiating our product and then also diversifying our revenue streams. So that's those are the two vectors that we're going to really be focusing on in 2023. A lot of it is in service of that integrated collaborative environment where you're getting more stakeholders onto our platform, just giving visibility into the lender in terms of what's happening and when within the report doesn't exist anywhere, right? We still call or email updates, but you could imagine something similar to like Domino's Pizza Tracker. I don't know if you ever order Domino's, um, don't judge me. But you can see when they put the pizza in the oven, right? You can see when they take the pizza out of the oven. You can see when the topping, that should exist for the appraisal process, right? Like that kind of visibility is pretty low hanging fruit. And then you can start building on top of it. You can see, okay, the inspection's been scheduled or the inspections occurred. Here are all the photos. We have a mobile app. We could do that live. You shouldn't have to wait three weeks to get the appraisal to see the inspection photos, right? If we're missing diligence, you should be able to see that. And you should be able to see what is missing and upload it into our platform, right? So, so that's one opportunity for product differentiation. And then on the revenue diversification front, I think that there's an opportunity to move the appraisal from a single use good into a durable good. So today we spend about 20 hours on average writing an appraisal, which comes in the form of a PDF, and we sell it for $4,000. And that's a single use good. 
Now, if we're able to unbundle different subcomponents of the appraisal and sell it on a platform, you could transition that single use good with a lifetime value of $4,000 to a durable good that could have a lifetime value of $40,000. So one of the things we just launched was a product that we're calling Sizer. We have about 50 users today, and it's basically Zillow for commercial real estate, but it's all of the properties we've appraised. The data is anonymized, but you can still see it on a map. And you can see key financial indicators like what was the cap rate we used? What was the expense ratio? What was the PGI per unit or per square foot? When was it built? When did we appraise it? And the idea is that we are trying to mitigate risk of execution for our clients. The worst thing that can happen for a lender is they underwrite a deal, they order the appraisal, and the appraisal comes in light. That could either kill the deal or piss off the borrower. So ideally, we are surfacing this information as far upstream as possible so that the lender can educate the borrower and everyone's on the same page when it comes time for appraisal. Fascinating. I'm, I'm salivating about that uh, transparency that you're injecting into the whole process. That's, that's great. Um, now, time kills deals, as you just hinted. So talk about the ambitious uh, vision of a five-day commercial loan and how do you, how do you fit in that? It's something that Jamie Henderson, he's the head of commercial real estate at Capital One. He's an observer on our board. That's his big mission. He wants Capital One to get to the five-day loan. I think he got it from like 90 days to 45 days. It's pretty incredible. But I think the only way to realize that vision is for all of the stakeholders to be working together. Fortunately for us, the appraisal is reliably the long pole in the tent. So you're usually waiting for the appraisal. So if we can compress that, we can really compress time. But really what you need is what I think of as a virtual deal table. You need the borrower at the table, you need the lender at the table, you need the appraiser, you need title, you need environmental, and you need legal, all working collaboratively. And any issues that arise, and there always will be issues, are surfaced upstream, not downstream. And that's the problem today. Everything is done in a serial, sequential, one-at-a-time fashion, and it really expands the appraisal process. So I think we can do it, but it, it's going to take a lot of work. And if we're able to realize that vision of empowering the five-day commercial real estate loan, I think the sky's the limit in terms of the opportunity. Fascinating. Ambitious. I like it. In terms of looking to the future and adding new data sources, adding, you know, are you looking to add building slash tenant usage data and, and carbon emissions data? I mean, are, are appraisers taking into account how buildings are being used and the emissions these buildings uh, are generating when, when valuing assets? So certainly building and tenant usage is something that is critical to appraising a property, but unless it's directly impacting net operating income, it's very unlikely for us to consider something like carbon emissions data. Now, if there were a carbon tax, that would be something that would be captured. But the, the role of the appraiser is to emulate how an investor would approach the property. So typically within a commercial real estate, and this is something that Zach and Jeff can talk about much better than I can, you're buying property for the yield, for the cash flow. So in commercial real estate, cash rules everything around me. Yeah. I think at this point in Europe, there are certain situations where lenders will give you better rates if you can show that your building is more sustainable. And in that case, obviously your interest expense is an expense. So I think in that case, if that type of regulatory regime migrates into the US, 
I think we'll probably see that more and more in Bowery's business model. Uh, but I think it'll depend on whether that start, starts to happen and also whether green bonds take off, right? Because if you can finance a building with a much cheaper, cheaper green bond package than your standard interest rate, an appraiser should be aware of that as they're, you know, anticipating the interest expense associated with that asset effectively. Yeah. I mean, as we build up our cap rates, we are looking at interest rates. So if you're getting a better deal or a lower cost of capital due to your carbon efficiency, then that's something that would absolutely be accounted for in developing our opinion of value. Good insights. Um, you know, in, specifically to office, uh, you know, there's there's plenty of concessions going around, uh, you know, probably for a couple of years now. Uh, maybe, as you mentioned, Snap's CEO announcing that they're coming back to the office next year. It, it kind of struck a chord. Like I saw it across Twitter. I saw it across everywhere. Uh, you know, people do think of Evan Spiegel as a more thoughtful social media leader than most out there. But it was interesting. However, at what point will an appraiser consider potential income generation from a different use than the current building use? I mean, or, or what will it take for appraisers to expect income to be higher from a different building use than the existing one uh, if, if we don't really go back to the office uh, like we used to? That's a really great question. It's especially great within appraisal because we're charged with doing is appraising what's called the highest and best use. So imagine a single story industrial property in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and it's just rezoned for R6 residential, right? As an appraiser and as an investor, you probably don't care that there's an industrial property there. Maybe it's encumbered by a lease of some kind, but the highest and best use of this waterfront industrial property is redevelopment of a condominium. And so as the appraiser, you're always looking for what the highest and best use is. So in that scenario, you'd run a cash flow for the duration of the industrial lease, and then you would layer on converting it to condos and do what's called a net sellout. But at every step, every report we write, we're assessing what is the highest and best use. Now, for a lot of properties, like a stabilized multifamily property, because of rent stabilization, there's nothing you can legally do. You can't just kick everyone out. So the highest and best use is you're sort of stuck, but that is the focus. And also, again, this mirrors how a real estate developer would look at an asset. They're trying to understand what could this become, not what is this. Absolutely. Good points. In talking about, for example, retail or malls, uh, could ancillary revenue sources uh, become crucial to diversify revenue stock and increase uh, the building value overall? Just as an anecdote through my through my work at Neighbor.com, the peer-to-peer storage marketplace, uh, we helped plenty of uh, publicly traded REITs monetize their unused parking lots, their unused spaces. Uh, I mean, those massive mall parking lots that are you know pretty much the same size as a small European town aren't going to be filled up again, probably. Do you see uh, these ancillary revenues uh, ever being taken into account uh, as part of the valuation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of my buddies is an architect. His whole business is looking at old big box real estate and converting them to preschools. Like there's always an edge to be had if you can get creative. I think in the Bay Area, you're seeing a lot of office space where they can convert it to lab space, something that a lot of investors believe will be more durable. But I think you've always seen that throughout the history of real estate. I mean, the apartment that I live in was an old school. 
right? A lot of the most valuable real estate in Brooklyn is industrial space, and that's used as residential space. Have you done a vertical farm? That would be cool, right? We have not, although there is another Bowery that does vertical farming. So, Have you done an appraisal in the metaverse yet? Not yet. All right. Next year, we're going to do both. Vertical farm and the metaverse appraisal for Bowery. I love it. There's unlimited real estate in the metaverse. Anyway, uh, let's talk about Bowery Valuation's fundraising journey. I mean, uh, you were part of the in the second cohort at uh, Metaprop, and you uh, also had a seed round uh, from Camber Creek, almost $2 million. Uh, if only we had an insider to talk about it. But yeah, so... You've raised almost $62 million in total since 2017, including $35 million from Goldman Sachs last year. So let's go back to the early beginnings. I mean, how did you start fundraising and how has the fundraising landscape changed since then? Yeah, I mean, I'm curious to get Jeff's perspective on this, but it was tough in 2017. John and I, John's my co-founder and co-CEO, we had been appraisers for about four years. That was it. Right. So first time founders, we didn't have any revenue. We didn't have any users. We had a product that was half built. Not a great sales pitch on the surface, right? Track record. Yeah, no track record. <laughs> and we were fortunate to have at least peaked Zach's interest. And I think that was a huge help for us because within venture, I think there's a really big difference between being an insider and an outsider. And so in doing Metaprop, I think we got sort of that insider tag, even though we didn't have so much of a track record or credibility. And through Zach, he introduced us to a number of potential seed investors, one of which was Jeff. So I, I remember uh, showing up to the Starbucks in West Village and Zach was there. I think he was wearing a robe. It was very cool, very investor looking. And John and I were there pitching you know, John and I would take turns pitching and one of us would give notes afterwards. Well, you did, you did misspeak. You did, you said Zach was in his robe. I was not in a robe, but I was not in a robe. I was wearing sweatpants, a t-shirt, and I had hair pretty much like down to my, down to my stomach. And I took this meeting because of Zach Aarons. And my skepticism about it was, I'm a reformed real estate developer. I know how painful appraisals are. And I know how entrenched certain actors in the appraisal space were and frankly continue to be. And I know the, the massive uphill battle that any company looking to enter the space was going to, was going to take. But John and Noah, I'll, I'll, I'll fast forward most of the meeting to one point that, that actually made me sit up a little straighter in my seat. And I said to them, why aren't you guys trying to license your software to other appraisers. And they looked at each other, John and Noah looked at each other, and they started laughing. And I said, why are you guys laughing? And they said, we don't want to be, we're not trying to be ageist here, but have you, what is your recollection of the age, the demographic of most appraisers? I said, I don't know, 40s, 50s, 60s, and they're like, exactly. We're not selling software to people who've been doing this for so long. It's just not, it's not in their DNA yet and I, and I and I like that so we're starting with a product we're starting by being better faster and less expensive than the incumbents and one day maybe we will be at that point 
where we're licensing our software to other appraisers. And, and the analog that I can draw now is our portfolio company, Notarize, which I, I call it building the rails and the rail car. And so Noah and John and their team, uh, Caesar and et cetera, they have, a, they have a big team. And I remember we, we, were, we were tough. Uh, that was a tough negotiation. And, and I remember a, a big part of it was that you remember in the term sheet we wrote uh, that you guys had to get an MAI that on your, on your team. And that, for those that are not fully versed in real estate transactions and specifically appraisals, that MAI, if you're Jewish, it's the heksher, it's like the kosher symbol. If you're Muslim, it's the halal symbol. And if you're Christian, it's everything. Uh, but the, the MAI, that stamp of approval is the only way that you're getting the lender to say, yes, we're going to, we're going to fund your loan. And that was a, a piece that was missing from Valerie when we first started talking to them. They landed someone absolutely amazing who I ended up losing a bet to a few years later. But before we invested, and this was one of the earliest deals we ever did, like seed rounds were not something, it's still not something that we, that we really do. We said to John and Noah, look, we'd like to test your, uh, your, your software platform, even though it's still relatively an MVP stage. And we were able to find a building that had recently done an appraisal. John and Noah put their system against uh, the appraisal that had recently been done. It spit out pretty much the exact same data and valuation, but it was so much faster and it was so much cleaner. And we said, great, this is something that, uh, that we want to be a part of. And then Noah, you can, you can tell, keep me honest here. From that point, fundraising for John and Noah was relatively, compared to our other portfolio, portfolio companies, relatively easy because they were doing something that nobody else was doing in the space and the handful of other AVM companies really couldn't cut it compared to what Bowery was doing because Bowery was actually creating an appraisal firm, not just, not just software. So it really was a high point for us to be able to, to invest in, in John and Noah. And I'll, say, and I'll just say one more thing and then Noah can opine. But I always think it's important to get along and like the people that you're investing in. And that's something that immediately I liked Noah and John. And over the years, Noah, again, keep me honest, we have not always agreed. In fact, sometimes we have agreed, disagreed vehemently, but there's that underlying foundation of respect and friendship that despite whatever differences of opinion we might have, that's there. And that's always been able, that, that's enabled us to speak to each other, frankly, have the hard conversations or the easy ones and, and do it with, with the knowledge that we all want what's best for the company. So it's been, it's been a real treat being a part of uh, a part of their journey, a small part of their journey. Jeff, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a little bit of a, a softy. Like I immensely grateful to you and Zach for believing in us long before you probably had any right to believe in us, you know? So you taking a waiver means a lot and it, it is life-changing in so many ways, right? I think the success is compounding and these early wins, even if they're on the smaller side, compound to things that are really big, right? Like the first check we got was $15,000 and I cried, right? And then it goes to 2 million and it's incredible. And then it's 5 million, and then it's 15, and then it's 35. But that $35 million check from Goldman's never happening unless you get that small initial check. You need that 
belief to build that momentum and it does really compound. So that belief in us early on really does make all the difference. There is no Bowery, right? Like people weren't chomping at the bit to invest in us. You know, could we have gotten another term sheet? Um, I think we did actually, but yeah, you did. Yeah. And I think we turned it down even though it was higher so that we could be with you. Yeah. Look, we had a great consortium. Well, this was one of the elements where, and, and this is interesting because this is reflective of today's environment. I don't know if you remember me saying this. So they were being given advice on how much to raise and at what valuation they should be targeting. And I remember saying, you're raising half the money you need at double evaluation. You should be, you should be getting at this stage. And that was not an easy conversation. And we ended up somewhere in the middle. We ended up, I think, in a, in a good place. But what was refreshing is that these two entrepreneurs who had something that really made me look at what they've done going from nothing in revenue to significant revenues, it's special. And in the last number of years, we've seen companies, entrepreneurs, founders, et cetera, get funded at ludicrous valuations, completely undeserving. And part of that is, is reflective of the liquidity in the space. Noah was saying money was free. So people were deploying in places maybe they shouldn't have and at valuations they shouldn't have. And that goes for all asset classes. And I think going forward, it's going to serve Noah, John, and people that started their careers during that time even though it was only five or six years ago, it's a different modus and a different feeling that they're getting. They're looking at this environment and saying, okay, we've been through tough environments before. We're going to be able to, to, to withstand this. Whereas there are some folks that are just going to crumble because they, they've never heard no before. I think it's a really good point. I mean, you asked how the venture environment has changed. I think that when capital is free, like you said, it does make sense to make outrageous bets because the downside is so low, right? And so you want to be very aggressive and you want to go up the risk curve. And when capital becomes more expensive, you have to decrease your appetite for risk to optimize your risk-adjusted return. And I think one of the challenges that I have faced is an investor has a portfolio, so they're diversified and they want you to take really big swings. So, you know, you can 10x, you can be the one company in their portfolio that returns the whole fund, right? The challenge is as a founder, you're not diversified. You're not a portfolio. You are- You're all in. You're all in. And so I think for me, there's always some tension, at least historically, between doing what is best for the business versus doing what will get us to raise the next round. And- I think now you're starting to see what is best for the business and what is best for the next round, at least in my view, starting to harmonize in a way that I don't think you really saw historically, or at least in the last you know six years since we've gotten into the venture space. And I think that's helpful. And I think that that means a renewed focus on getting to profitability, not growing quite as fast, but growing more sustainably. And what's really exciting for us is we're renewing our focus on never having to raise venture capital again. We can, and we should if we want to. Not needing it is extremely empowering and affords so much more optionality. And I think that is something that is, it sounds weird to say, but it's novel, right? Like within the venture space, getting to profitability is, I, I tell my dad how much money I've raised and he's like, I don't understand. Like you're losing money. How could your company be worth anything? It's like, well, we're making more money than Uber, right? So it's a different way of viewing the world. And it means that capital is going to be harder to come by, 
but I think it's for the better. Very cool. Barry Valuation, you guys have a quite a diversified, strategically diversified investor stack. So I'm curious to know how, you know, you have real estate owners like Lefrac, you have PropTech VCs like uh, Camber Creek and Metaprop, you have banks like Goldman and Capital One. How does having such a diverse investor tech stack help you navigate uh, the current economy and reach uh, profitability? I think it's been immensely helpful, right? Like one of the, not just because Jeff is such a great guy, but also sort of the pedigree that he brings and also Camber Creek and also the syndicate that he brought together was very validating for us and gave us a lot of credibility. It's extremely hard to start from a standstill, no clients, no revenue, and build a business when you're selling to banks. And so early on, that credibility was really important. So having a Camber Creek logo and having LaFrac early on, and also Corrigin Ventures, now Alpaca, that makes a huge difference, right? Credibility is the most important thing when you're selling to a lender because they're very risk averse, as they should be. And so that was really helpful. There's also just counseling, right? Like we had no idea what we're doing. We had never had a board meeting before, right? Like there's not a lot of training. So I think early on. Well, you mean Starbucks meetings are, don't count as board meetings? No, 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 no. I, you know, I had totally forgotten about that, Noah. You remember? Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to blast this out, but yeah, we had, we had some interesting early board meetings. I think a lot of people take for granted, but there's no training for how to do a board meeting, right? Like I've had, I don't know, 25 board meetings at this point. I still don't know if what we're doing is the right way of doing a board meeting, right? Like there's no one way to do it. I think every company does it their own way and there's nothing, you know, there's not a lot of content available for you to sort of digest and establish what the right way to do. But it's just to say that there's a lot of coaching that's required, right? We were 25 year olds when we started Bowery. And so there's mentorship that also comes from the investors. I'll say as we've continued to raise money, we've had people who are able to mentor us in different ways. Um, and, I, and I think Capital One and Goldman Sachs are also great examples of two, you know, best in class banks lending credibility to what we're doing, but also helping us shape the future of valuation and commercial real estate transactions together. So when we talked about that, you know, five day vision for a commercial real estate loan, that's something that we're working with Capital One on. And we're trying to understand what are the blockers and what are the best ways of intervening and navigating those blockers to realize that vision. So it's immensely helpful. Let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, Noah, we're going to give you a magic wand. Uh, what's one aspect of your city that you would choose to improve or that you would change? So I'm in New York City. I think it's, it's as good as any city in the world. I would say it's the best city, but I think there are other great cities out there. I would say the smell. I live on you know the border of Soho and Lower East Side, so trash day in the summer isn't great. So if we could shift that, that'd be great. Also, uh, garbage disposal doesn't exist in New York. I don't think it's legal for properties. So that would be nice as well. Other than that, it's perfect. What an amazing city. Noah, let's enter the discomfort zone a little bit. Uh, what's something that you've changed your mind about? What's a perspective that, that you've changed uh, recently uh, and how did you go about it? I wouldn't say it's so recent, but I would say over the course of starting Bowery, one of the things that I've changed my mind most about is what it means to be an empowering leader, 
when I started, the last thing that I wanted was to be overbearing and micromanaging my people, right? Like you hire really smart people to enable them to be successful, not to tell them what to do. I think that led to me being too hands off and just saying, hey, if I'm going to empower these people, that means let them do whatever they want. And over time, what I came to realize, at least for myself and for Bowery, is that empowering your really incredible team means setting them up to be successful, which doesn't always mean being hands-off. Sometimes it means being very hands-on, but really focusing on how do I make my people as successful as they can be, as opposed to let them do whatever they want. Those are two very different things in my mind. And I think that represents a pretty meaningful shift in my style as a leader. Lastly, where can Tangent listeners find you and learn more about Bowery Evaluation? Bowery Evaluation does not have an Instagram, so that's not going to be the place. Uh, best place to find us is either on LinkedIn or BoweryValuation.com. Just had a great idea. You guys have appraisals that see all sorts of gnarly shiza when you are, you know, when you're appraising. You might want to have a Bowery Evaluations Instagram with anonymized for location, but like whoa, look at this toilet that's in a shower. Crazy. Guess where that is? We have a toilet Slack channel. So I think that's pretty doable. And not my creation. You know, that was, you know, me giving space to empower people to do what they want to do. But no, but, but seriously, I think, you know, you guys, it's, it's interesting. I know we're running out of time, but Noah and John made a concert, concerted effort. We didn't even talk about this. They were ahead of the curve, wildly ahead of the curve when it comes to DEI. And uh, they were lamenting the fact that every appraisal, sorry, every appraiser looked the same, an old white guy. And they said, why don't we have more women in the space? Why don't we have more minorities in the space? Why, why aren't there other people aside from this one group? And they're fine, but like, we should have a more diverse base of, of appraisers and appraisal professionals. And they actually went out of their way to cultivate groups of people that otherwise would not be interested in careers in, in appraising. I feel like this Instagram channel and like weird stuff that you find in your appraisers, appraisals, that might, you know, gum up some, uh, some interest. No, you should, you should think about this. I like it. I'll, I'll talk to Jillian who runs marketing for us. I like it. I would hate to suggest this, but uh, Jillian might want to consider uh, TikTok because I feel there's a lot of content in buildings that you can put out there. Anyway, thank you, Noah Isaacs. This has been uh, truly fascinating. I mean, I'm bullish on bar evaluation and uh, what you're doing for the commercial real estate appraisal uh, industry. Uh, thank you, Zach, for joining us. And uh, thank you, Jeff, as always. Of course. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Edward. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Tangent and share this episode with a friend. This season is edited by Katarina Silva and is produced by me, Edward Cohen. Thanks for listening to Tangent and remember, collaboration is our superpower, so stay curious and always be learning.